Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. So a, a police officer is chasing a bad guy, and he's got him cornered, and the cop has a gun out pointing at him. And does he get to shoot the bad guy at that point and decide his fate right then and there? Well, no, unless the bad guy happens to pose an imminent danger, as in he pulls out a gun and tries to shoot the cop. But otherwise, the bad guy actually gets a trip downtown, and he gets his day in court, which is his right But what if the bad guy is a suspected American terrorist living overseas who is believed in the last few months to have planned attacks on the United States? And the president is told by his aides, we know where this guy is right now. We can get him today. Does the president get to kill that guy? Or does that American have rights too? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate. So let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. The president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, with the motion being the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose the winner and only one side wins. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion. First, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Alan Dershowitz. And Alan, you are the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard. You're well known for your civil liberties advocacy. You've served as um, legal advisor to Julian Assange. You have argued to save two brothers from the death penalty in front of the Supreme Court. You defended the right of neo-Nazis to march through Skokie, Illinois. You recently retired. So what are you doing with all your free time? Free time. I wish (laughs) I am busier than ever uh, writing, litigating, debating, and uh, occasionally taking walks on the beach in Florida. Well, we're glad we have you here during this free time of yours. Thank you, Alan Dershowitz. And Alan, tell us who your partner is in this debate. My partner is a real American hero. Uh, He served in the military, and now he does a great job in defending the military, the distinguished professor, Michael Lewis. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Lewis. And Michael, you also are arguing for the motion that the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. And as uh, Alan Dershowitz mentioned, you're a professor of law at Ohio Northern University Pettit College of Law, and you served in the Navy. You flew F-14s, and you flew those in uh, missions uh, including Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So you're having this combined law experience and this combined combat experience combines in what way for you? Well, it gives me a perspective that most people that write in this area don't have. Most lawyers are military lawyers first. Uh, I was a combatant before I knew the law. So that means you know what you're talking about. I hope so. I hope so. Well, we'll find out. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the motion. And we have two debaters arguing against this motion that the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. Let's meet the first of them. Please welcome Noah Feldman. Uh, Noah, you are the Bemis Professor of International Law at Harvard Law School. You were an advisor in the drafting of Iraq's constitution. 
Yes, you see how well that went. <laughs> well, you try. You try. Uh, and you are also uh, a, a, a very prolific author, including in 2013 co-authoring the casebook Constitutional Law, 18th edition. So were you there at edition one? Not exactly. <laughs> that was how far back? That was in 1937. All right. So you, you may have been precocious, but not that precocious. Ladies and gentlemen, Noah Feldman. I know your partner is. My partner is also a genuine American hero, the inspiring and remarkable Hina Shamsi. Ladies and gentlemen, Hina Shamsi. Also arguing against the motion that the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. You are the director of the ACLU's National Security Project. And right now, Hina, you are in the middle of litigating a lawsuit actually directly related to the subject before us tonight. Tell us briefly what's going on in that. I represent the families of three U.S. citizens who were killed as part of President Obama's targeted killing program in Yemen in 2011. And one of the people who died is Anwar al-Aloki, who's referred to in your program. One of the other people who died was his 16-year-old son, whom no one has accused of wrongdoing, but who was blown up by a drone while he was eating dinner at an outdoor restaurant. All of which tells us that none of this is theoretical. We are talking about the real world. Let's please welcome Hina Shamsi. So, on to round one. Round one are opening statements from each debater in turn. Up first for the motion, the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. Michael Lewis, a professor of law at Ohio Northern University Pettit School of Law and former Navy fighter pilot. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Lewis. The president does have the power, the constitutional power, to target American citizens overseas in the exercise of his war-making power. Now, that war-making power is not unfettered. The Founding Fathers saw to it that only Congress may declare war. Now, while formal declarations of war have not occurred since World War II, major military operations such as the Gulf War, the 2001 Afghan War, and 2003 in Iraq all only happened after the executive was authorized to use military force by large bipartisan majorities of both houses of Congress. Now, the AUMF, the authorization to use military force in 2001, our opponents will say was only directed at those that participated in or planned 9-11. However, since that time, the judiciary has determined that the scope of that authority actually is al-Qaeda and associated forces. The thinking behind this is that when you're dealing with a, an enemy like al-Qaeda that is diffuse, that is splintered, you're not going to require the president to return to Congress for authorization every time a new group with a new name shows up in a new location as long as they are still trying to kill Americans in this country or kill American troops and contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, once the executive has received the authorization to use military force from Congress... It is then the exclusive province of the executive branch to determine when, where, and how that war is fought. Congress tells him who we are declaring war on. Declare a war on Germany, he can't go fight France. But it is up to him how he fights Germany, where he fights Germany, who he targets. That is exclusive executive decision-making. Now, the president does have a duty under international law to distinguish between targetable individuals and civilians, but he does not have a duty under either international law or the U.S. Constitution 
to distinguish between targetable Americans and targetable non-Americans. And as my partner will argue, such a distinction would be immoral. Now, you will hear our opponents argue that this authority of the executive is geographically bounded by hot battlefields. You can only use this authority in hot battlefields. That is a term that does not appear anywhere in either international law or in the U.S. Constitution. Lastly, we are going to hear from our opponents, there is insufficient transparency on the part of the administration. They are not telling us enough about how they know what they know about our enemies and what they know about our enemies. Now, of course, if they reveal this to the American public, they are also revealing it to our enemies. And to say that the due process rights of our enemies must be vindicated by telling our enemies what we know about them and how we know it, well, let me say that it is obvious why there is no constitutional requirement for such disclosures. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Lewis. Our motion is the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. And our next debater to speak against this motion, Hina Shamsi. She is the director of the ACLU National Security Project. And she is currently litigating a lawsuit that challenges the government's killing of three U.S. citizens in Yemen. Ladies and gentlemen, Hina Shamsi. Noah and I are here to argue against the proposition because the power that the president is claiming is unlawful and it is unwise. In our system of checks and balances, the president cannot be the judge, jury, and executioner. Now, for very good reason, our constitution and international law strictly limit the government's power to kill people without judicial review. In areas of actual armed conflict... Under the law, the government can kill people without judicial review because of battlefield requirements. Outside that context, extrajudicial killing is legal only if it is a last resort and only if it is in response to a truly imminent threat. The government can't kill Americans simply because it believes that they may do something dangerous at some point far off in the future. This is a democracy. It's not minority report. Now, the president and our opposition seek to circumvent due process in ways that strike at the heart of our system of checks and balances of what it means to be a nation ruled by law, not men or women. First, they want to redefine the battlefield so that it covers the globe. Then, they want to redefine the law. We only found out how much after the leak of a so-called white paper which purports to summarize still secret legal memos that were written to justify the killing of a U.S. citizen, Anwar al-Awlaki. The white paper acknowledged that he was going to be killed outside of recognized battlefields, but argued that the killing could be lawful in response to an imminent threat. It then redefined imminence to mean its very opposite. The White House now says that it can order the killing of an American it suspects may someday present a threat, even without evidence of an actual plot. This is a radical reinterpretation of the law. What should trouble us as much as these legal shenanigans is that the actual full standards for killing Americans far from any battlefield are still secret. The government refuses to disclose to us its killing memos. 
Now, you may hear a lot tonight from the other side about why we need to trust the government when it comes to national security and threats. But one of the core lessons of the last decade is that trust us is never enough when the government claims power over life and liberty. Many Americans were outraged when President Obama claimed worldwide authority to detain people, suspected terrorists, without charge or trial. We should be similarly outraged when President Obama claimed something far more radical. The power worldwide to kill people the government unilaterally deems its enemies. This is not the world that we want to live in, and no and I hope you agree with us and vote no to the motion. It is a proposition that is un-American, unlawful, and unwise. Thank you. Thank you, Hina Shamsi. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. And a reminder of where we are, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. The president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. You've heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third. Here to argue for the motion, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Dershowitz, who is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at the Harvard Law School and author of 30 books, including his autobiography, Taking the Stand, My Life in the Law. Ladies and gentlemen, Alan Dershowitz. Thank you. Under the precise motion before this House, our opponents have the extraordinarily heavy burden of showing that under no circumstances should the commander-in-chief ever have the authority to order the targeting of dangerous terrorists, regardless of how imminent the threat may be, how impossible it would be to capture him, if that enemy happens to have been born in the United States or naturalized as an American citizen. Consider the implications of that extreme position. This is not minority report. These are cases where there is clear evidence that somebody in the past has joined al-Qaeda or its affiliates and has participated in the planning of operations against the United States. That's not minority report. Our opponents argue that a terrorist commander planning an imminent attack on the United States that can only be prevented by a drone attack has a constitutional due process right to a judicial predetermination. But consider the following relevant analogy. What if an American citizen, wearing a T-shirt emblazoned with his passport on one side and the American flag on the other, took a series of hostages? You don't even have to imagine it. Just consider if Timothy McVeigh, instead of killing so many children in Oklahoma City, had taken them hostage. And let's assume that he had said, I'm not going to kill anybody for 48 hours until I complete the negotiation. But during that 48-hour period, a sharpshooter was able to target him not knowing exactly when he might start killing Americans. Would anybody in their right mind demand a due process? Or would you say that the situation there permits for the use of deadly force? That's not murder. Yes, it's an extrajudicial killing, but extrajudicial killings occur all the time. Every time a fleeing felon runs away with a machine gun from a bank robbery, just on the basis of the possibility they may do it again, the United States Supreme Court has definitively ruled that deadly force may be used without violating his due process rights and without a predetermined judicial 
authority. In fact, the Supreme Court just heard a case on that issue, and the report in the New York Times said none of the justices gave any attention to the claim that there would be a due process violation in shooting a a fleeing felon under those situations. Um, Of course, mistakes are made. When you drop bombs, people are accidentally killed. It's especially the case when terrorists make the decision to hide among civilians. There should not be a distinction drawn between terrorists who are American citizens and terrorists who are not, except, of course, if they're captured, in which case being an American citizen makes it worse because it's treason. But if they're not captured, if they're on the battlefield, once one signs up to become an al-Qaeda operative, his or her citizenship does not and should not matter. So just use your common sense. Does the Constitution really straitjacket the commander-in-chief of the United States Armed Forces? Does it really deny him the constitutional power to prevent an act of terrorism just because the person planning the act of terrorism is an American citizen. I urge you to vote that the president has such power to protect you and your children. Thank you. Thank you, Alan Dershowitz. Our motion, the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. And here, our final debater making opening statements, and he is arguing against this motion, Noah Feldman. He is the Bemis Professor of International Law at Harvard Law School and a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and Bloomberg View. Ladies and gentlemen, Noah Feldman. We're on hallowed ground here. Those of you who live in Philadelphia are accustomed to invocations of the Constitution and its importance. But for those of us who are visitors, it's not a trivial thing to come from the airport, get out of the taxi, and see Independence Hall, where the most basic principles of liberty were set down for the United States. And indeed, the framers believed that by demonstration, they were setting down those principles of liberty for the whole world. That matters, and it ought to matter to us in thinking about this issue, because it pushes us to ask, what is the essence of liberty? What's it all for? Why do we even have a constitution? And if you boil that down to its deepest essence, going back to Magna Carta, which is 1215, if you're counting, the essence of Magna Carta, the thing that was demanded from King John of England, was to promise that the government would not kill its own citizens without a trial. That's it. That's the essence of liberty. Your government can't kill you without a trial. And when we say due process, which is a fancy expression, that's all it means. Now, if you are fighting at the Battle of Guadalcanal in a Japanese uniform, and you suddenly hold in the air your U.S. passport, sure, there is no doubt that in that context, the American soldier on the other side can kill you because you are on the battlefield in a legitimate war. Now, what is the difference between a person on the battlefield fighting in a war and an American citizen, thousands of miles from home, who is targeted by a government program? The answer is pretty simple, and there are two of them. One is, under the international law of war and under our domestic law, the threat has to be imminent. Imminence means, means what the word imminent sounds like it means. Imminent, about to happen. The second element is, you have to be in the war. You have to be on the battlefield. Now, The other side has said, quite honestly, and I give them a lot of credit for saying this, that in their opinion, 
the battlefield is anywhere. So you get off the plane at Heathrow, you're abroad, so you're under the terms of our motion, you can be killed. Why? Because the President of the United States could determine, secretly, by a secret process, that he believes that you are affiliated with either al-Qaeda or some other force that he says now, 13 years after 9-11, is affiliated with al-Qaeda. And when that happens, you can be killed. Now, is that consistent with the idea of a declaration of war? No, it is not, because a battlefield cannot stretch forever in time and everywhere in geographical dimension. That meaning, by the way, is relevant to our Constitution, because when our Constitution talks about the declaration of war, it's referring to a concept from international law. As a consequence of all this, you have to ask yourselves, where will it end? So there's a plausible answer, which is eventually, Congress will say the war is over. When do you think that's going to happen? When do you think it's going to be in the political interests of your elected representatives to stand up and say, you know, 9-11 happened, we fought back, the war against terror is over, and we hereby, what, peace treaty? There's not going to be a peace treaty. So I think it's quite realistic to expect that from the standpoint of Congress, and therefore from the standpoint of the executive, they're never going to end this war. If that bothers you, you should vote no on the proposition. Thank you, Noah Feldman. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion is, the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. Now on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and from you in our live audience here in Philadelphia. We have two teams of two arguing for and against this motion. The team arguing for the motion, arguing that the president does have this constitutional power, Alan Dershowitz and Michael Lewis, we've heard them argue that this power actually uh, grows out of the president's war-making abilities and that it was sanctioned by Congress, and they argue that the battle goes where the combatants go, and that there is no distinction to be made between combatants who are our enemies, who are Americans, and combatants who are not uh, Americans, that anybody who signs up for the other side more or less gives away many of the protections of American citizenship. The team arguing against the motion, Hina Shamsi and Noah Feldman, argue that, first of all, the, the rules matter, that the question of where the battlefield is, a hot battlefield, is essential to the idea of whether it's right for uh, killing to take place. Also, where and when that due process is owed to American citizens, no matter where they are. They also argue that a trial before getting a death sentence is an essence of liberty, that that's part of who we are and has been for a very long time. Let's... um, Let's go through, actually, what I think we need to do is go through some of the discussions and the disagreements we see about definitions and the rules. And I want to go to the side that's arguing that the president does have this constitutional power and point out that your opponents have made the argument that your argument that the war goes where the combatants go is, is false because it's, it's without end and that, in fact, it's pretty well established in international law what we mean when we define a battlefield. Um, Alan Dershowitz or Michael Lewis? Alan well, Dershowitz. In the old days, they used to actually have battlefields that were marked off, and the battles would occur on the battlefield. Uh, obviously, over time, the concept of battlefield has expanded. Al-Qaeda expanded it even more by declaring that the battlefield was anywhere where they can legitimately operate from and kill Americans. There's no doubt that the battlefield includes Yemen, it includes the Sudan, it includes parts of Pakistan. 
Uh, of course, it doesn't include Heathrow Airport because we can arrest people at Heathrow Airport. For purposes functionally of defining the power as we discuss it, it includes anywhere where al-Qaeda is operating functionally, where it has the protection of local people, where they can't be arrested, and from where they can attack the United States. That is a reasonable, functional definition of battlefield, and we have to adapt the definition to our enemies. Otherwise, our enemies will defeat us through lawfare, not through warfare. Hina Shamsi. I'm reminded of something that Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, which is that you're entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Actually, the law is pretty clear. There are tests under international law about what a battlefield constitutes. It's called hostilities, and it sounds exactly what it's, it is exactly what it sounds like, which you've, you've got to have a certain threshold of violence. You've got to have a certain threshold of repeated violence. That standard is quite simply not met by the one that the, our opponents offer up. They would have the battlefield be wherever the government says that it is. And it's not where the government said it is, says it is. It isn't where al-Qaeda said it, says it is. It is where there actually are the kinds of hostilities happening on the ground. Michael Lewis. The threshold of violence discussion that, that she mentions is from the Tadich opinion from the ICTY. And that applies to internal armed conflicts, right? This is not dealing with a conflict between a non-state actor that crosses international boundaries. That was from the Yugoslav War. If we are talking about the boundaries of battlefields between two nations, World War II did span the entire globe. Americans killed Japanese and Germans in China and in Burma and off of Australia all over the but world, my, my, those things were going on. And more importantly, if we're talking about what other nations do, other nations facing non-state actors do not allow them to have a sanctuary, which is what they are saying they should get, by going across an international boundary. You get to Yemen, you get to Somalia, you get to Sudan, and you're safe. You are immune from attack just because you got to a certain place. And then you can rearm, refit, and reattack. The laws of war do not work that way. Noah Feldman. I just want to clearly refute the point that somehow the battlefield is anywhere where we can't arrest somebody. First of all, we could arrest people in lots of these countries, Yemen and Pakistan included. And if you want proof of that, it's that those governments actually agree to our drone strikes. The Obama administration's official position is we don't do drone strikes in a country without the permission of that country. You know why? Because otherwise it would be an act of war against that country. So if you can get permission from a country, you can get help from that country. And in principle, arrests would be possible. I want to add one more point. If you think that anywhere in the world counts as the battlefield, then even though our motion talks about abroad, it follows logically that the president could do it within the United States. Let me stop you there, because I think I want to hear the other side respond to that point. Alan Dershowitz, is that, is that, do you, does that frighten you, that thought? Well, uh, the president already, I mean, the executive already has that power, as I proved in my so that's opening. That's a yes. No, let me, let me answer the question the way I want to answer it. The executive already has the power to kill Americans if they are fleeing felons, if they are holding hostages. If we had a situation where al-Qaeda uh, established a base in the Smoky Mountains from which they were sending rockets to Philadelphia, and we couldn't arrest them because the geographical situation was difficult and it would require the sacrifice of 10 or 20 or 30 American soldiers to arrest them, 
The answer to the question would be yes. We could use a sniper, as we have in the past. We could use a drone. We could use any modern technology to kill an American citizen who was endangering American citizens imminently by having a base firing rockets. Yes, the answer to that question is yes. Now, it's not yes in the sense of the same response that would occur to somebody who is abroad. The, the criteria would be different, but the power already exists, and there's no doubt about that. And Noah, how would you respond to what is the difference between a terrorist holding hostages in the United States, and the only alternative is to let him continue to hold the hostage, you can't arrest him, but you could kill him by a sniper or a drone. Hey, would you deny the executive let's the power let, to let's do Let's let Hina answer that question. So the answer to that is that no one questions seriously that the police, forces, military have the ability to use lethal force in response to an imminent threat. What we're talking about is what the president's authority, as, it he, as he claims it today, is. And that authority is very distinct from what we've been talking about. It is based on a global battlefield, and it is based on a definition of imminence that does violence to life, to the rule of law, and to language itself because it radically reinterprets it. That's really at the heart of what this debate is. Perhaps it sounds like you would agree that judicial review is needed. We can, we can see if you agree with that or not. It's a very hard thing to talk about what kind of judicial review, right? Because if you're using the law as it applies, if lethal force is used in response to an imminent threat, then by definition, you won't have judicial review in advance. That's understandable. But if you're using imminence as the administration defines it, with apparently people being placed on kill lists for years, then the argument against judicial review falls away, as does the legal justification. What's most troublesome right now about the government's position and what it argues in court is that the courts have no role to play, none at all. Let me interrupt you and bring in Michael Lewis to respond to that. Is that, is that troubling or not, that the courts have no role to play? No, I, that it's the, up to the, the professionals. Courts, the courts do not have a role if we are talking about war. What we are trying to say, if you're talking about wartime, there is no imminence. You are allowed to kill an enemy during wartime, whether they are armed, whether they are awake. Right? You are allowed to kill enemy, positively, enemy, positively identified enemy soldiers in wartime at any time. That doesn't require a showing of imminence. And the question is, are we at war with al-Qaeda? So, so you're saying the imminence question is actually irrelevant? Yes. Noah Feldman. Imminence... Um for so everyone, position, position. for everyone, you, you define the word very nicely, but let's take the Latin out of it. And imminence means it's about to happen right now. Imminence means it's about to happen right now. It has a meaning in international law, it has a meaning in American domestic law, and it has a meaning in English. If you have ch- time to leak to the papers over the space of weeks that you think you're possibly considering killing a guy, um, that's not imminent. But I just want to point but, out... But they're Michael, saying it doesn't matter. Right. Michael is now saying, which I, I haven't heard Alan say, but Michael has said now, imminence doesn't matter. We can kill an American citizen abroad any time we feel like it if he's affiliated with al-Qaeda based on a decision made by the president in secret. Well, I, I think you're prepared to concede that. I mean, if you have uh, Osama bin Laden, who uh, is planning these things long-term, and you can find him, let's assume, on a hot battlefield then surely you don't require imminence either. You require, you define imminence functionally as well. 
I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., the topic up for debate. Does the president's constitutional power extend to targeting and killing U.S. citizens abroad? Stay with us. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. I want to remind you that we're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator, and we have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. The president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. We're taking audience questions, and the gentleman has been very patient. Uh, my name is Jerry Balker, and I'm a Philadelphian. And when you mentioned that the founding fathers would not have tolerated this, I think back to when Washington crossed the Delaware and chased the Hessians down the pike. What about that civilian overlooking the route and that civilian who had a hand grenade in his pocket? Do they have a right to act first or wait until they get blown up by the hand grenade? So... If I understand your question, it's one that is based on the existence of an actual war and an armed conflict and the participation of a civilian in that armed conflict. And the law actually does permit lethal force to be used against civilians who are at or on the battlefield and directly participating in hostilities. There's no question about that. The difficulty we're having here now that you're hearing this evening is that our opponents want the battlefield to be defined so broadly that there is no limit to it. And that's is there a common sense is there a common sense notion to their claim that the battle, that a battlefield is everywhere. And, and, and in his opening statement, Alan said basically this is common sense. And I think we all understand what they mean by that. And I, I'd like to hear more of By the way, we're not saying it. everywhere. We're saying everywhere. Where, where they are. Where they, where they are and have sanctuary and can't be reasonably arrested. It's right. not Heathrow Airport. So I, there, the common sense side of that argument is appealing to the intellect. I want to see if there's a response to it. Either, either of you would take that. Let me, let me just Johnson. start and perhaps Noah will jump in. Uh, you know, Listen to the language that they're using everywhere where they are. Who is they? The government is telling us, President Obama has said, that core al-Qaeda has been decimated. So now we're talking about associated forces. Who are associated forces? The government refuses to define them. It refuses to tell us who we are. Part of the core of what we look to in a, in a, in a, uh, in a democracy is when we go to war, we need to know who we're at war and we absolutely don't know that right now, and the kinds of thresholds for war to exist simply are not there. And Michael Lewis, you, you're, in fact, your opponents in making that point earlier also said it's a really big mistake to go into the whole notion of trust us. You know, give the executive a trust us pass. And it sounds as though you're being accused of doing that. Well, first of all, when you talk about... Uh, it's not the executive that is saying we are at war. It is Congress. And it's their, their job to say so. So they are saying that we, we cannot describe in detail how we are determining who the enemy is, because if we describe in detail who the enemy is, then they will make sure that they are not that, right? If you think about uh, RICO laws, RICO laws are developed to deal with the mafia because the individuals in the mafia knew what they could say or not say and therefore not be guilty or not be close enough to the crime. 
Same thing here. If we say what you need to be to be on our list is you have to be doing A, B, and C. But does that mean they're right that it is a trust test situation? At some level, you always have to trust the executive because it's the executive that is given the authority to do but, this. But also, every single act of targeted assassination is then reported to the House and Senate Intelligence Committee. Virtually every exercise of legitimate presidential power is subject to judicial review. There is no inconsistency between saying the president has the power, which is our proposition, and them saying, but if he violates that power or abuses it, you can take him to court under judicial review. We don't oppose that. What we oppose is having the judiciary in advance saying, well, maybe this guy you can kill, this guy you can't kill, when the president and the intelligence community have information that they cannot disclose. And one more point that I have to make is that you're so solicitous about al-Qaeda members, about 600 Americans are killed every year by police in the course of arresting fleeing felons. We do that without judicial review. The Supreme Court, in the case of Gardner versus Tennessee, has said if there is any possibility that the person is dangerous and might commit a crime in the future, if the alternative is to let him escape, you can shoot him dead. How do you distinguish that case? I just want to be really clear that what we're debating, and this is an answer to that, what we're debating here is the president's power under the Constitution, what he's really authorized to do constitutionally. The president is authorized, the, the police are authorized to use deadly force in a situation of true imminence. Absent imminence, the president is not authorized. And what we're talking about here in the real world is where there is no imminence in the ordinary sense of Imminence of, the term. of what? Imminence of immediate deadly harm. Okay. That's the standard. That's the reasonable standard. It makes sense in the war context. It makes sense in the police context. It does not make sense when the administration has time to run it up the flagpole and see who salutes. Yeah, you know, that's, okay. that is common sense from this side now. Okay, in so, terms, uh, imminence means, right, you know, imminence means it's going to happen today. The no. guy's on the plane, right? Well, the question is imminence no? of what? Now, let me be very clear. Let me uh, put on my hat as a law professor who's been teaching Tennessee versus Gardner for the last 25 years. The law is completely clear that the person does not have to be imminently planning another crime. The imminence is he will escape unless he's shot dead. The only alternatives are shooting him dead or letting him escape. He's committed a past crime. He may commit a future crime. So the Supreme Court, for American citizens, has already defined imminence functionally. So, Noah, you're just wrong when you say that the imminence requirement always modifies the imminence of the ultimate harm. Sometimes it modifies the imminence of the escape. Okay, down front here. Um, Mary Beth from New Jersey. My question is, at what point does a U.S. citizen lose the right to due process? Let's put that first to the side who has actually made that point in some detail, but to take the opportunity to elaborate. And either of you can take Michael Lewis or Alan Dershowitz. I think the answer to that is when they become an operational member of al-Qaeda. An operational member means you are not just... uh, proselytizing, you are not just uh, giving people uh, religious reasons for liking Islam or hating America. You can say, I hate America all you want, but when you become an operational member, that means you are making bombs, you are planning attacks, you are carrying out attacks, you are conducting weapons training, you are training others, and you are directing them how to make suicide vests, conduct suicide attacks. You learn those things, you teach others those things, you are an operational member of al-Qaeda. And so this is not a surprise. You don't get off the plane in Heathrow Airport. No, I'm suddenly targetable. No, you are doing these things. Same question to the other side. Hina, would you like to take that? Sure. Hina Shamsi. Um, 
an American citizen always has the right to due process. The question is, what does due process look like in a particular sort of circumstance? And when we're talking about an actual armed conflict, people on a battlefield, then due process does not require uh, trial or charges uh, if lethal force is going to be used. But what we are talking about here is something that goes far beyond that, which is the claim that a person may be uh, deprived of their due process rights even when they are far from any battlefield, even when they do not pose an imminent threat, and that the government will not let the judiciary test that claim. That is at heart what is one of the most problematic things that is going on. And I would like to get in one more question and just wait for that mic to come around. Mary Gregg, Philadelphia. I'd like a definition of where the battlefield is. Where, where is it? All right, fair enough. Uh, this side. Sure. Right Finish now, Ramsey. the battlefield exists in Afghanistan and potentially the border regions with Pakistan. So they can get asylum in Yemen. If they just go to Yemen, aren't you encouraging every al-Qaeda terrorist to leave those two countries and go to places where you say the president can't get them? Noah Feldman. The president can get them, provided their threat is imminent. It's as simple as that. And we've circled back, and that concludes... (laughs) That concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. And now we're going to move on to round three. And round three, our brief closing statements from each debater in turn. The motion being the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. Here to argue in his closing statement in support of this motion, Michael Lewis, a professor of law at Ohio Northern University Pettit College of Law. Having flown over hostile territory, I have some appreciation for the restrictions and constraints that our opponents are trying to place on our commander-in-chief and the armed forces he commands. You have to remember that every soldier is an extension of the president's war-making power. For me to use my weapons, certain parameters had to be met, and those parameters were established for me by my chain of command, which ended with the president of the United States. But according to our opponents, even if I had the president of the United States himself on the line... If my target was an American citizen or if there was an American citizen amongst the enemies that I was targeting, then he could not give me the authority to release the weapons. We would have to go to the judiciary to ensure that the due process rights of our enemies were not infringed. And while there may be certain circumstances, they were talking about, well, how imminent is it if we're talking about al There may be certain circumstances in which there is time for discussion between the judiciary and the executive branch. But I guarantee you that there are many, many times in which there is not sufficient time for such discussions and deliberations. Justice Jackson famously said that the Constitution is not a suicide pact. But for members of our armed forces, that is precisely what our opponents are trying to make it. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Lewis. The motion, the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. Here to summarize her position against this motion, Hina Shamsi, director of the ACLU National Security Project. When I started out earlier this evening, I laid out the ways in which both constitution and international law work together in order for there to be authority to protect us as well as to protect individual liberties. And 
I remind you that our founders included the due process clause in the Bill of Rights at a time when the very life of the republic was at stake, when it was facing an existential threat. That's not the issue now. But even then, at that time, founders believed that there are some powers that a people should never concede to their government. That's why they included the due process clause, because they thought that extraordinary powers in one office inevitably will be abused no matter who sits behind that desk. That's especially true when we are faced with amorphous terms like global battlefield, associated forces, terms that can be subjected to misuse, abuse, regardless of how good the intent of a human being can be. The basic proposition before you today is that the president can carry out a targeted killing of a person, including American citizens, without due process, without ever presenting that evidence to a court. The president has gone beyond what the Constitution and international law permits him to do. We ask you to vote against the proposition in order to start reining back the kinds of powers that have been so dangerously assumed and asserted today. Thank you. Hina Jamsi. Our motion, the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. Here summarizing his position in favor of this motion, Alan Dershowitz, the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. Look, I love the Constitution. I have devoted my life to defending civil liberties and the Constitution. I, too, was on the national board of the ACLU. I'm here today to defend civil liberties, the civil liberties of non-combatants, all non-combatants, whether Americans or non-Americans. I fear that if the president's ability to defend us against terrorist attacks, even those committed by American citizens, is placed within an unrealistic straitjacket, grave damage will be done to our Constitution and to the international laws of war that distinguish between civilians and combatants, not between Americans and others. The Constitution is a living document that permits every generation of Americans to strike the appropriate balance between protecting our civilians and living within the rule of law. We can do both as long as we adapt to new realities, such as the fact that terrorist groups operate all over the world and operate within civilian areas. We must adapt. Allowing the president to employ these drone strikes will strike that proper balance. So in the name of the Constitution, in the name of civil liberties and human rights and common sense, I urge you to vote yes. Thank you, Alan Dershowitz. The motion, the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. Here to summarize his position against this motion, Noah Feldman, the Bemis Professor of International Law at Harvard Law School. In the real world, the way that drone strikes are now used, an administration, it could be Democratic or Republican, leaks to the press that it plans to target and kill a particular American somewhere in the world. Last time it was Yemen, this time in process it's Pakistan. Now that leaves that person a choice. And in the case of the Yemen example, that person through his father actually came to a U.S. court and said, hey, I'd like to be heard. You got the wrong guy. I'm a propagandist. I don't like America very much, but I'm exercising my free speech rights. And the executive branch said to the courts, don't hear this case. They used a bunch of reasons, but one of them was, it's a secret whether we're targeting him or not. This is after they had leaked it. 
Then they killed him. And then they said, well, you definitely don't get review after the fact. Oh, and by the way, we did kill him. So it wasn't apparently that much of a secret after he was dead or when it was leaked in the first place. Now, we're in the midst of one of these processes right now. Now, we could speculate about why the government does it this way nowadays. One possibility is that they've got a bad conscience about whether this is really imminent under their own legal definition. But I'll tell you this, and I'm really not joking. When they're running something up the flagpole to see who salutes, they're trying to see how you, not you in the abstract, you, the particular people in this room, will vote on this question. How you vote will be noticed. It will be a component of a real-world process at the end of which someone will live or die. And on that basis, I urge you to vote no. Thank you, Noah Feldman. And that concludes closing statements. A few things I would like to say. One is uh, what a pleasure it has been to be uh, hosted here today by the NCC. You know, the, the comments that Noah Feldman said about seeing Independence Hall and the references to the history, of, I mean, really felt tonight as we were having this constitutional debate that we could feel the vibrations of history coming through the floor. It was spectacular to be here, and it was an honor to be uh, the guest of uh, Jeffrey Rosen and the National Constitution Center. Thanks so much for having us. This program was also supported in part by the Daniel Berger Esquire Programming Fund for the National Constitution Center. Our thanks as well to the fund. So, all right, it's all in now. I have been given the results. Remember, the team that has changed the most votes in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. The motion is this. The presidential has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. When we have announced a winner, you may feel free to congratulate them with your applause. (laughs) The first vote, 29% were for the motion, 44% were against, and 27% were undecided. So those are the first results. Remember, you voted a second time. The winner of the team that has changed its numbers the most from the first vote to the second. So here is the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 54%. That's 29 to 54%, 25 percentage points, which is the number to beat. The team against the motion, their first vote, 44%. Their second vote, 39%. They went down 5%. That means the team arguing for this motion has prevailed with the motion being the president has constitutional power to target and kill U.S. citizens abroad. Our congratulations to them and thank you from me, John Donvan and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was presented in partnership with the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.